City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. I want to talk about Cupid, right? Cupid, you may know uh, from Hallmark, is the cherubim who shoots you with an arrow and you fall in love. This is sort of the American concept of Cupid. But actually, Cupid is from Greek mythology. Uh, and Cupid was the son of the goddess of beauty. And there's probably my favorite Greek myth that is centered around Cupid uh, and some other folks. So uh, there in one of the cities in Greece, there was a family. And they had three daughters. And as they uh, had these three daughters, each daughter was more beautiful than the last. So that the youngest daughter was the most beautiful woman anyone had ever seen. Her name was Psyche. She was so beautiful, in fact, that she provoked the goddess of beauty to jealousy. The goddess of beauty was not having how beautiful this girl was. And so the goddess of beauty went to her son, Cupid, and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one of your arrows, and I want you to go and find Psyche and shoot her with this arrow so that she falls in love with the most grotesque man that you can find. Because I will not have her beauty outshine mine. Already we can see that this story is intense, right? But wait, there's more. So Cupid goes out on his mission for his mom. He finds the beautiful woman Psyche, and he is about to draw his arrow to shoot her. But as he's about to draw his arrow, he nicks himself in the ear as he pulls it out of the quiver. And so this arrow with Cupid's magical something-something on it that makes you fall in love with the first person you see instead of being plunged into Psyche, hits him. And so, of course, he falls in love with this woman. The problem is, because of the, the laws of the Greek gods and whatnot, he could not reveal himself to Psyche, the woman he loved. So he built her this gorgeous palace with golden columns out in the countryside. And he invited her and took her and said, yes, come to my home, come to where I'm at. And every night she had the best of foods. And then once darkness fell, he would say, come with me. And they fell more and more in love in the dark, where she couldn't see him. Well, her sisters were not big fans of this arrangement. They came and visited her one day and said, how is this? How is this? There, there is no way that your husband is good. There is no way that your husband is beautiful. This is, this is impossible. And she said, no, no, it's look. Look at the food that we're eating. We're having incredible Greek food. It's the best feta cheese in all of Greece. And they said, this is impossible. And their envy, just like the envy of the goddess, was stirred up inside of them. And so they convinced their sister to hide a lantern in her room. And that night, when she went back to Cupid's room, she took out the light and shined it on Cupid. And instead of seeing a grotesque monster, she saw a beautiful man, a beautiful Greek god. But from that point forward, she was cursed. She was cursed to not be able to be with him. This is a, a, a 
great story. There's a, a great version of it in English uh, called Till We Have Faces, written by C.S. Lewis. That's basically a, a retelling of this story, and it's incredible. It's actually C.S. Lewis's best work um, by far. But it's a story at the end of the day that is all about jealousy and envy. And jealousy and envy is not something that just the Greeks had. It's something that we have as well. It's interesting that functionally, and my wife will yell at me like about this because she knows that I don't know that much about economics, but functionally our economic system is built on jealousy and envy. You, you know what Ford wants you to think when your friend gets a new car? Oh, I want that. And so what do you do? You go out and you work harder and do a better job and get a better job so you can afford that car. Everything that we do is driven by this idea of I've got to have more. I, I want what my friend has, and this is what drives our economy. This is, what, this is what commercials are for, right? To tell you what you should be wanting, to make you envious of the person that has them. Whatever they can do to provoke that envy, commercials will do it. This is what drives our economy. Let me give you a further point. You want to really see how this works? Go on social media and compliment somebody about something they're wearing, something that's in their picture, something that they have. And guess what you will find within just a few minutes? An advertisement on your social media feed for that thing or a better one. Go online, tell somebody they have a nice watch, guess what you'll be seeing for the next month and a half? Watch advertisements. This is what absolutely drives our economy. But what's the problem? All of us, universally, Christian, non-Christian, wherever we find ourselves, would agree that jealousy and envy are not positive traits. But nobody around here would say, yeah, envy is totally good. That's a really healthy way to live. Be more envious, y'all. <laughs> you, you know what you should do? You should be more jealous. That's what's really going to make you happy. Your problem is you're not jealous enough. You should be more jealous. No. Everybody universally agrees envy, jealousy are bad. And yet here we are, all of us, in our own way, probably struggling with some form of envy or jealousy. What's interesting is it's not just the Greeks who talked about this. It's not just us who struggle with this. It was the same in the Bible. And so as we read the story this morning that we're going to read, it's about... David, but more than being about David, it's about Saul and Jonathan, the father and son, the king and crown prince of Israel, and how they respond to David. So David is almost a set piece in our story this morning. So while our series is about David, today we get to introduce David as sort of just a set piece. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read this story to you. Uh, it's from 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'd ask that you would stand up as we hear God's word together. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword 
his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet Saul, or to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by, as he did day, by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Miriam. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant and fight for me. Fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives? My father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. And at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been give, given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's David, Mike, daughter Michael loved David. And they told Saul, and it ple the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, and she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private. Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke the words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem a little thing to you to become this king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man with no reputation? And the servants of Saul said, Thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David, well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy. When the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, 
And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So in some ways, David is just a, a side player in this story. Because what we see again and again as we read this chapter is a focus on Saul. And let's be honest, it is not a pretty picture that is painted of Saul. And on the one hand, I think we can sympathize with him. Saul was the king. Saul was the king of all of Israel. And yet, who defeated Goliath? Was it Saul? No, it was David. And every time David was in a battle, guess who won? David. Now, if you're Saul, this is not exactly making you feel good. But it can't have helped when they came home from battle one day, and the women started singing a song that's, Saul has killed thousands, and David has killed ten thousands. Not a good one. What we begin to see is that envy and jealousy begin to stir up in the heart of Saul. This becomes a theme. This becomes overpowering for everything that Saul does in many ways for the rest of his life. But in this chapter, we see it distilled down. Because Saul is jealous and envious of Jealousy and envy. Wanting what other, people's ha- what other people have, wanting what other people can do, is poison. But we don't think it's poison. We think it's medicine. But it's one of those things that it's the sort of thing that it's a scab, that the more you pick at the scab, the worse the wound gets. And you think, ah, yes, I know. I know when I picked the scab last time that it made it worse, but this time it will get better. It is, I'm reminded of in Harry Potter, uh, a moment when uh, Dumbledore had to drink from this uh, vial of water. And, And as he drank from it, he got thirstier and thirstier, but the only thing else left for him to drink was more of this magical water that made him thirsty. And so what did he do? He kept going back to it. Even though it was making him more thirsty, he kept going back to it. And that is the way that jealousy and envy work in our life. They promise us that they will quench our thirst, but the only thing they do is make us more thirsty. It is like being in the ocean, dehydrated, and drinking salt water. The only thing that it does is make you more dehydrated. And it escalates. You see the way that it escalates in Saul's life. At first, he's mad at David, and the first thing that we really see is that he begins to give David side eyes. That's that's literally what the Hebrew text says. He started side-eyeing David. Every time David was around, Saul was looking at him, but it didn't stop there. The jealousy stewed in his heart more, so it wasn't just side-eyeing David. In Saul's case, it escalated to violence. He threw a spear at David. Now, if you're the king, and there is a guy who everybody in the kingdom loves, and you kill him, that's not going to be good. So what does Saul do? He devises a plan. 
he takes his jealousy, his envy, and he buries it further inside of his heart. So that people can't see what's going on. So that people can't see that what's going on is that this jealousy and envy is consuming. He buries it further and devises some plans. Here's what I'll do. I'll send David out to battle, and he'll be killed. Well, guess what happens? David doesn't get killed. Guess what happens to David's reputation when Saul tries this? David's reputation gets better. When we are in the pit of jealousy, everything that we do seems to work against us. Everything we do seems to make the problem exactly what Saul was experiencing. He was, he was trying to get David out of his sight, so he sends him out to battle, and David wins the battle, and then all everybody wants to talk about now is David. It was as if there was word vomit everywhere in the kingdom of Israel. All anybody wanted to talk about was Regina, I mean, not Regina George, David. It's all they wanted to talk about. And so then Saul says, ah, he has to do a greater battle. He has to do something more. What he has to do is kill a bunch of people to marry one of my daughters. And so David's response is, I'm just a poor boy from a poor family. And so he goes out and he fights the battle. And then Saul pulls a bait and switch and says, nah, never mind. While you were gone... I gave my oldest daughter to that guy. That guy who has a name that I can't pronounce, which you all saw moments ago. But then something else happens. Saul finds out that his daughter, Michael, is in love with David, and that David is in love with Michael. So he goes, ah, now I've got it. Here's what I'm going to do. You're poor? I get it. You don't have money? Your family's not great? That's fine. You don't have to pay me any money to marry my daughter, Michael, who you love. But here's what you do have to bring me. <clears throat> Quoting the Bible here, a hundred Philistine foreskins. <laughs> the fact that a young baby boy cried at that. Can't make that up. And Saul is playing the game of averages, the law of the regression to the mean. Certainly, David is not going to be able to go out and kill a hundred Philistines. One of these guys, David's going to be tired, it's going to run into something, David's not going to be able to handle it, and he's going to die. I am finally going to be rid of him. Jealousy in our hearts sours it turns us inward, and it turns into malice. It's interesting that the Bible always connects jealousy to hatred. Hatred to murder. We see this in Saul's life. That Saul has functionally gotten to the point where his envy of David has escalated to the point of attempted Well, again, because of the way envy works in our hearts, no matter what we do, it just keeps getting worse. And so David does not bring a hundred Philistine foreskins to Saul. He brings two hundred. 
Saul continues to rage against him. See, what's really interesting that we see in the life of Saul here is that envy is a unique sin in that it is punishment unto itself. The sin of envy is its own Because it rules our hearts. It drives us again and again back to this idea that life isn't fair. It's not fair that David killed Goliath. It's not fair that David gets accolades. It's not fair that people love David more than me. It's not fair that they got the promotion. It's not fair they have a relationship with him. It's not fair that they have the financial security that I wish I had. And when we begin to go down the path of envy, it works in our heart in such a way that we cannot step away from it and keep coming back to it. Because at its heart, what envy says is, I have done enough, and I deserve and no one else has done as much as I have. No one else has been as good as I have. Therefore, they don't deserve blessing. Envy turns ourselves inward and makes us self-righteous. Makes us look around and say, you don't deserve good things. Only I deserve good things. And when you get something good and I don't, God is wrong. That's, that's where envy goes. That's what envy is saying at its heart. God is wrong. God is unjust. God is not fair. If God did what was fair, I wouldn't have to deal with this. If God did what was fair, I would have that thing that I wanted. If God was fair, things would be different. I'd be more successful. My kids, my kids would have it all together. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to stress out about what my kids were doing. I wouldn't have to constantly bail my kids out of bad situations. Luck would be on my side for just once. For just once, luck would fall my way. Or maybe you'll understand it when I put it in terms of my own sin. As a pastor, I am for the flourishing of all of the churches here in St. Pete. Until a cool couple shows up at our church that is church shopping around for other churches. And this cool couple that's financially secure and mature in their faith and all the sorts of things that pastors just love in people, say, yeah, we're looking at all these different churches and we happen to come here. And then I talked to one of my other friends here in town who's a church planter. Oh, yeah, they ended up at our church. Where does my heart go? Does my heart go, yeah, they're connected to a church. They're doing good things for Jesus. This is awesome. Or does my heart go, no, wrong, wrong answer. Incorrect. Come to my church. Because all that stuff I say about the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, I don't mean it. You come to my church. In all honesty, that's where my heart goes. When I find out that somebody around town a businessman in town as a solid Christian, my heart goes, ah, they need to come to my church. 
because jealousy always makes us say that I deserve them that I deserve to have success in my career because of what I do. And what happens is, in order to get there, in order for our hearts to turn envious, what we have to do is minimize our sins. Because if I'm going to say that I deserve things that you don't, what I also have to say is that my sins aren't that bad and your sins are. That the things that I do are a little bit wrong, that yeah, I'm a little prideful, yeah, I'm a little, I, I, I'm a little, you know, better than most people, but that's just because God has blessed me that way, and we begin to minimize, we begin to minimize our own sin. Yes, I have these addictions and habits, but they're under control and no one else has to deal with them. We begin to minimize our own sin. And when we don't get what we want, when we try to treat God in a transactional way, and say, look God, I'm doing these things, and you're not giving me what I want, it makes me angry at the people who get those things. And ultimately, it makes me angry at God. What's interesting is, if you've been around City Church, you often know that I sort of set up this, this way that we take and look at this passage, and, and I'll contrast the way that some of us who are Christians twist Jesus and turn it into a sort of transactional relationship, or the ways that we ignore Jesus, the, the, the religious and the irreligious. What's interesting about envy is if when, when we let it take root in our heart, religious envy, envy that says God should be giving me more, always turns into irreligious envy. God isn't there. God isn't fair. God isn't good. God doesn't care. So are we left without hope? Is this sermon just me going, Y'all envious. Deal with it. Because what's interesting is, our world has no answer for envy. I, I, I went on this morning, and I looked up the most common responses from peer-reviewed psychological journals about what do we do about envy. Do you know what the answer is? Just, just be happy with the stuff that you've got. Which is functionally saying, just don't be envious. Do you want to know what the antidote to envy is? Be more content and stop being envious. To be quite honest, that's kind of obvious. Because the next time that our rival comes around, the next time that we see someone else get pregnant when we've been trying for so hard, the next time when we see someone else get a raise, guess what comes rushing back into our hearts? The next time that cool couple goes to that other church, guess what comes rushing back in? But it's interesting in this passage that we see another way. While Saul became more and more envious, while it, it sat like a stew. You see, envy is like, envy is like curry. I can make you curry in about an hour. Or I can make you curry in about nine hours. Let me tell you something. That nine-hour curry is a lot better than that one-hour curry. Why? Because all of those flavors, those oils, those spices, they just stew. And they keep going. And it gets deeper. And the flavors get more complex. And it just, it's, it's wonderful. Curry is incredible. We should all eat curry. I think I'm going to have curry for lunch. But what happens is 
things that same way. When we let it stew, it grows. So Saul responds by continuing to stew in his envy. But who had more to lose in his life from David's advancement than Saul? And that would be Saul's son, the crown prince of Israel, Jonathan. See, David was going to be, or Saul was going to be king for the rest of his life. But guess who was going to be king after him? Jonathan. If there's anybody who should be threatened by this Johnny-come-lately shepherd who got lucky on a fastball of a rock one time, who should be most threatened by David? It's Jonathan. Jonathan has the most to lose. And yet, how does Jonathan respond to David? Jonathan loves David. Jonathan gives David his robe. When he gave him his robe and his belt and his sword and all those things, what he's basically saying is, you're going to be the next king, man. This crown prince garb that I've got going on, that belongs to you. I'm going to say, David, you're the man. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine saying to your co-worker who got the promotion that you wanted so bad, you're the man, look at you, and meaning it. Not, not saying it because it's the proper company etiquette thing to do, and if you yelled at them and cussed at them, HR would be at, in your office quickly. No, but genuinely meaning it. Because that's what, that's what Jonathan did. He said, David, this is so exciting for you. It is incredible. Let's celebrate. Let's make a Let's always be friends. Let's make a covenant. How do we get there? How do we get from a place of envy in our hearts to celebrating others? I think what's interesting is this, this passage gives us a picture of that. You see, the first step crawling out of the pit of envy is to admit that you do not have things altogether. That you are not as righteous as you make yourself out to be. That you are not as good as you think you are. That you have drank the poison of envy and you have been thirsty and you've gone back to it. That you admit that envy is death. And when we begin to see ourselves in that spot of not being worthy, that's where the spark of hope begins. Because what else happens in this story? David is told that you should have the second daughter. Not the best daughter. Not the daughter that puts you in line if all the guys die. The second best daughter. The daughter that in bride prices is not worth that much. And what does David do when Saul sets the bride price of a hundred Philistine foreskins? He brings two hundred. Michael was not worth that much. And David overpaid for her because he loved her. City Church, you and I, because of the way 
that we drink the poison of envy, the way that we are killing ourselves with jealousy, are not worth that much. But guess what? Jesus overpaid for you. The cross was Jesus going above and beyond anything of worth in you. But because he loved you, just like David loved Michael, because of how much he loved you, he paid more than enough. He doubled the price. You see, the way out of envy is not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying harder not to be envious. It's not by just waking up in the morning and saying contentment. The way out of envy is seeing that your worth and your value is not in the things you have or the things you do. Your worth and your value is in the fact that Jesus has loved you and given himself more than you can imagine paid a higher price than you can imagine for you. And so while on the one hand we should read the story about Saul and we should see ourselves and be struck by the way that we are envious, the other hand of that is we should see how much Jesus loves us. We should be joyous. We should be rejoicing that Jesus loves you so much he paid more than you're worth. He went to the car dealership, saw the sticker, sticker price and said, Double it. That's what I want to pay for that car. Dibs. That's mine. I want that car. That's my favorite car in the whole lot, and I'll pay you double to get it. That's how much Jesus loves you. And so what happens is, we begin to change by seeing myself as needy and not deserving. By seeing Jesus as extravagant and not liberal. And when we begin to combine them, when we begin to see that I am needy and Jesus is extravagant, not I am deserving and Jesus is withholding. No. When we see it, I am needy and Jesus is extravagant in his love towards me, what it does is change our outlook on everything else. We begin to see that there are unique blessings that we have received that no one else has. And so when somebody else gets a blessing, instead of wanting that thing, what we end up wanting is to celebrate with them. To say, yes, you got the promotion. Yes, you found a relationship. Yes, you have more money than I do. Yes, you were able to get pregnant. When we're able to see that, instead of envy, our hearts are turned to joy and celebration because I am needy and Jesus' love is extravagant.